Hello and welcome back to From the Start podcast. Um, it's been a while. I, I need to just push some apologies out first. Obviously, I knocked season one out of five quick episodes and then just found that I'd run out of time. And my um, second love of football took over basically any free time I had because uh, my team, Leeds United, got promoted. And that segues me perfectly into my guest today, uh, Jimmy Gobbs, um, grassroots footballer. Uh, and he's got a bit of a story to tell. So uh, over to you, Jimmy. Where did it all start for you then, mate? Where did you grow up and stuff like that? Um, started in Birmingham. Grew up in uh, Birmingham. And just started. My dad took me to like a local park. Started playing there. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm quite, quite good. And then I moved we moved house. We moved out of Birmingham. Um, just outside into Solihull. Uh, moved schools. And we had like a little Saturday club. Um, so I just started playing there really through Saturday football, um, grassroots level, and then got picked up from there. Went to Birmingham uh, for a little bit, didn't work out, and then went back into grassroots, and then went to Chelsea from there at sixteen, and then didn't get a contract, and I've just stayed in the in the game since, sort of like full time. Um, dropped into non-league for a couple of seasons, and then started to work my way back up. So, as a 16-year-old going to Chelsea and then not getting a contract, how much was that a kick in the teeth? Uh, you know, because <clears throat> obviously Chelsea's a massive club, as much as it pains me to say it, being a Leeds fan. Um, but, you know, how hard did that actually hit you that you've been down at Chelsea and then didn't, didn't manage to get a contract? Uh, it, it did. At the same time, I think my views at 16, my views of football was, well, I'm 16, I've left school... Didn't really do very well in my GCSEs, as you can imagine. Um, and I thought, well, Chelsea, literally, that was 2010. They just won the Premier League. So I thought, if they don't want me, that's the top. That is the pinnacle. So that's fine if they don't want me. There's so many clubs underneath that I bet I'll just walk into. Um, and as I found out, that wasn't the case. So it didn't hit me until a couple of months after when I realised it wasn't going to be as easy uh, as I thought it was going to be. Um that's when you kind of hit me a little bit more in terms of how difficult and how cutthroat professional football really is. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I listen to obviously a fair few football podcasts under the cosh and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. one thing that that resonates throughout them is quite quite a few players mention on there that they had a, they got knocked back and it, it kind of ruined their career a little bit. Obviously, that didn't happen for you because obviously you went on to continue your career. But yeah, you know, I, I'm, how much. How much pressure do you think's on young players, and how much do you think it affects them? By because my my son went to an academy, and if I'm yeah. honest, he got pretty brutally released. Um, yeah, like just just finished last training session, sent him a letter, and went, "Yeah, you're done," kind of thing. Which wow. at the age of eight is a bit it's difficult trying to explain to him what what that actually means. Um, you know, I, I how did you feel after a couple of months when it, it finally sort of hit home that you'd been let go, and it was going to be a little bit harder than you thought? lost absolutely lost because I thought I think from 13 I stopped enjoying football at 13 and I just thought this is all you're going to be able to do like you've got at school mate I was terrible like not behaviour wise I was a bit cheeky but I was never like the worst behaved I was just not intelligent I was thick mm. um, so I thought football's all you got and I sort of I played for one team I was probably the youngest by a couple of years and uh, I loved it, absolutely loved my Saturday mornings playing. Um, and then when I moved on from there to like the next level up, you kind of, I stopped, my enjoyment went and I just felt pressure all the time. Um, and it does, you can't say, I think players try and say, oh, there's pressure on them, but no one listens, like no one takes it seriously because they go, oh, what do you know about pressure? You just play a game. And I think, yeah, but... You won't understand. If you don't understand, you just don't understand. And I've kind of accepted that some people will always have that view that there's no pressure in football. You know, it's a game. You know, what? But I think now there is actually quite a lot. And for every player like me who's come through a system in England, you know, there's players abroad trying to come over. There's senior pros. Like, you don't just turn 18 and become a first-team player. Mm. Like, there's senior players who've played maybe 500 games in your position and how are you gonna how are you gonna get into the side? Like how are you gonna take the shirt off them? Um so it's that's why the loan window is quite good to be fair. But in terms to answer your question in terms of pressure, there's a lot more than people people realise. Yeah, and how much do you think 
the pressure affects because it, like I, I don't want to stereotype, but a lot of footballers are lads like myself and you who come from working class backgrounds who yeah. spend you know majority of their early years playing football on the streets in parks with the mates all that type of stuff and you know sometimes can be guilty of all their eggs in one basket that I'm going to be a footballer and all I ever want to be is a footballer and then when that opportunity of being a footballer disappears then you know they then become a bit lost and I think you know it is obviously the conversation is going to segue a little bit into mental health and I think that's one like large part of it that if you don't feel like you belong anymore that's when you start to question yourself and start to question am yeah. I doing this right where do I fit in all that type of stuff um is that your experience would you agree with that yeah, 100%. Like, since Marcelo Bielsa's coming at Leeds, I think you've heard people say it, like on Sky, and like, he's got plan A, and then they said Marcelo Bielsa's plan B is to do plan A better. Uh, I'm sure you've heard people say that. Um, and that's what football was to me. Plan A was become a footballer, and if play isn't, plan A wasn't working, then plan B was to do plan A better. I had to be a footballer. Um, and you found, not even from myself, but everybody else, saw me as oh, that's Jimmy Gobes that is like he's, that's the football lot from the age of I'm talking end of primary school everyone in the area knew who I was through football it was fright like I could go to tournaments my granddad used to drive me like you'd finish school and go to a tournament and everyone there was like oh that's the district goal that's Jimmy and my granddad was like yeah it's my grandson it, I, it was weird um, mm. but then you get known as not a person or like, no one knows Dave the mechanic because of the mechanic. Everyone just knows him as the mate Dave, whereas everyone knew me as, like, a footballer. And I think if you'd stop doing that, then you feel like your identity has been taken away. Um, and like I say, when I got released from clubs or when I got injured, the first thing people want to say to you is, oh, how's your football going? And it's pretty difficult to say, oh, yeah, I've been dropped. We've signed a lad on loan from a bigger club and I'm sat in the stands every week or... Oh, I got released last week. It's such a difficult thing to say. You feel like you've lost who you are. Um, and it's, it's the all eggs in one basket was how a lot of my mates growing up thought. Like there was no, oh, what, we could go into this if football doesn't work or should we do this? There was none of that. It was we're playing football and that's all we're going to do all the time. That was all it was. Yeah, how much support did you get around from the coaches and stuff like that? You know, like long-term injuries is, an in, is, a, is a really interesting one uh, because, again, to go back to footballers, footballers, okay, they probably get typecast as being got everything that they ever want, money and all that type of stuff, but you tend to forget that footballers started from the love of wanting to play football and it's all yeah. they've ever done. And then you suddenly take that away from them and, again, the lost, again, the like all they've ever done might have been going into academy, going into a starting academy, starting pro clubs, going, train, be around the lads, go to match days, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden you take that away and then they're yeah. like, get to a point where they're like, well, what have I, what have I got now? And I know in certainly in Clark Carlisle and other footballers, you know, that that's a, a lot of the injuries is what they attribute to their sort of downturn of their mental health because they're not being able to do the thing that they would really want to do. Yeah, that's, it's, I think with me, so I was in the National League at 20 and I was at 20, I was the fittest I've ever been. Like I was absolutely flying. And um, after a game in pre-season, I felt my hamstring was really tight and I thought, oh, that's weird. So I went to the physio a couple of days later and said, oh, can you have a look at my hamstring? And he said, yeah, I've torn it. And I thought, well, that's weird because if I tear my hamstring, like I know, like if, it's, if anyone's torn their hamstring listening, they know they've torn it, like it's a real pain. Um, and we kept doing the rehab for it and he kept tearing like over i reckon i had three tears in three months probably like I thought, this is ridiculous um and we worked out as my back so i had to spend months and months out injured and like you say i just wanted to kick a ball i was so desperate to go and kick a ball and you become lonely but i thought well like the way i've always dealt with it is control the controllables so i thought right at the minute you're injured whatever you can do do so we there's a really good running track by me Alexander Stadium um, and we arranged me to go there and learn to run again basically um, so I felt I felt like I was being productive so it didn't affect me as much it was when I came back from injury and I'd lost a bit of sharpness and I didn't feel I was performing at the level that's when it affected me more really um, 
but you do find a lot of players like it's so lonely being in football mat like the amount of times i'm on my own in the house in hotels like you just learn to like i quite like my own company which is lucky but for people that don't they'll really struggle and that's the people i really do sympathize with yeah so uh, national league at 20 where did your career lead you to after that then jimmy uh so i didn't obviously after my injury i didn't get a contract so i was out of the game out injured for for a good few months then um and that's that's where i struggled because i was paying all my bills myself in terms of i don't mean household bills obviously i was but in terms of like my physio bills i was paying a specialist rather than getting a club to look after me so i was struggling so after that i went to stayed in the national league i got back fit and i messaged the manager um, to a club by me and said look this is the situation like i'm coming back fit i said i just want someone to train with um and he said yeah i said i don't care he said put me the 18s if you want i'll go and train with the 18s and just work with the goalies and he said yeah whatever works for you mate we'll, we'll accommodate you so i did that um got fit and then i sort of played evo stick which is like the league you've got like national league national league north south and then the league below that and i hated it absolutely mm. hated it um i spent a couple of months there and i went back to the national league and said look i need just give me a chance just, i'm fit just give me a go so i went there played one game um, and we signed a goalie on loan from chelsea and i thought all right that's my season over um so after that i said right the club i was struggling with mental health a lot then this one was really hitting me uh, i had a few things going on in my life that were really affecting me um and i said look just let me go and play we're like we're in a relegation battle here you've signed a lad from chelsea on loan who is outstanding will probably play in the premier league um just let me go out on loan and let me play and they said yeah can i go and find yourself a loan club i said that's your job you should get me a loan club like why am i doing it they said nah we're not doing it if you want to leave you can leave i said well i'm not doing that i've got bills to pay like who walks out on a job like with nothing to go into so i went out on loan traveled a number of times on the motorway on a saturday driving to games driving back it was ridiculous um and i was going to different teams each week at one point i'm um, just on emergency loan uh so i did that and that took me into probably 2014 2015 no, 2016 probably this point um and then did that for another season signed for a national league side didn't get a chance so i said right i'm going out on loan again and then went to play abroad and that was a brilliant experience yeah did you got uh gibraltar for it yeah hey yeah gibraltar yeah i'm so um what what was the sort of lifestyle like out there compared to in england in the in the game uh it was a lot further back in terms of the training the nutrition it was they were a long way behind um but my day mate like i literally i got up at eight i lived in a hotel so in the middle of nowhere in san Rafael in spain so it was the other side of the border so i'd get up go down to breakfast have some breakfast go up grab my boots and my gloves the member of the coaching staff would pick me up drive me to training we trained from 10 30 till 12 and in spain in gibraltar we trained in spain as well sometimes um the heat was ridiculous it was so hot um and then we'd go home have lunch i'd have like a siesta or if i didn't sleep i'd just like chill put like i'd sky go and netflix on my ipad so i'd just watch that I'd love island was on quite a bit in this pre-season so i hammered that um and then say go training again 6 30 till 8 come home um or back to the hotel and i just have dinner and go to bed like it was that was all my life was I think if we got an afternoon off, there was like a little arcade um, about a minute from where my hotel was. There's like temping bowling. And, do you know like the arcade games where you shoot the rifle at the little targets, the lasers, yeah. things like that? Um, basketball hoops, you pay like a euro for a go and stuff. So I do that on my afternoons off, but that's about as exciting as it got. I think people think, oh, being a football is this lucrative life where you're always out. And now, mate, like I, I saw a holiday in. That's all I did, <laughs> and a bit of yeah, yeah. Um, Jimmy, just to, just to touch on a point you made earlier about um, your mental health starting to yeah. suffer. When when did you when did you sort of realise that um, me- mentally I'm I'm suffering here? Because my, of my experience of it, which 
you know, is it uh, the thing I've discovered is mental health is very personal to the individual. Um, yeah. it, it's like not one of the things you can pick up Google, um, you know, depression, Google anxiety, Google whatever, and think, yeah, yeah, I tick all them. It's like it's very personal to you and it affects people in completely different ways. But certainly, I know from from my experience, there was a, a bit of a eureka moment where I sat there and thought, do you know what? This, this isn't normal. Like, this is, but I think in my experience, I'd, I had normalized it. I thought, yeah, that's just me. That it's just the way it is. But then you look at it and you think, actually, no, it's not. Like, when, when was your eureka moment and, and, and when I did that come about? Or did you ever even have it, to be fair? Because I, I know quite a few people who've never had the eureka moment. Um, I had two. I've had two sort of what I'd class as serious sort of mental health battles. And why I say serious is like, you naturally, as humans, our mood will fluctuate. So just because I have a bad day or I feel down a couple of times, that doesn't mean I'm depressed. That's just being a human. Um, but the two serious ones I had, it's classic. And I hate to use this, like say classic being a man, but it is very stereotypical where you just ignore it and we don't talk about it and you bottle it up almost. Um, so the first one I reckon was sort of 2015 um, where I had a few things going on and I was struggling and I just sort of ignored it. I thought, nah, like, I'm I'm fine. Like, this is just, you just got to ride the wave a little bit. Like, life's hard, mate. Just, and that's well, that was my attitude to try and fight it off because I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to release what was inside. Um, and that just sort of carried on. And at one point I sat with my mate and my heart rate from literally just sitting like this was, you'd think I'd just been sprinting it was racing and i said to him i said come here and i put his hand on my chest and um i, I won't repeat what he said but he was like that's not normal mate that's we need to do something here and i said nah it's fine mate. i'm just a bit stressed like and i thought looking back you think jimmy that's not normal that's not a bit of stress mate um and i just bashed it off like i was uh, i had a mate at leicester um and obviously they were winning the league that season um and we went that I went up to Old Trafford the day that we thought they were going to win it. Um, we had two VIP tickets to go up the game, and I thought, right, brilliant. Like, um, and I think after a couple of days after that, you imagine you get a Coke bottle or a champagne bottle, um, and you take the cork off. At some point, the cork's going to pop. Do you know what I mean? If you shake it, and that's a couple of days after that, it was in May 2016. I just broke down and I said, I can't do this anymore. Like, I need help. Um, that was the first one. And then the same in 2019 when I had my views, I reckon I had a good 18 months probably of just suppressing, suppressing, suppressing the emotions I was feeling because I didn't know, it was slightly different this time, but I didn't know how to talk about how I felt and I didn't know how to explain my feelings to anyone. So I just suppressed it. And it got to about March 2019. And yeah, it probably was about 18 months of just bottling things in that I just broke down, like, and I rang, I think I rang my dad or rang one of the coaches at Birmingham and said, I need help, like, I don't know what to do. I, I need some help. Um, and luckily, the PFA, I know they've been criticised a lot this season um, and previously, but the PFA were absolutely unbelievable with me. Like, I rang them a couple of days later, explained my, situ my situation, and I was getting two calls a day from the PFA and they weren't just like, hello, how are you? We'll call you later. They were good sort of half an hour, one hour, I think hour and a half, hour and a half at one point. Um, and then they got to one call a day. And then as I got better, they said, right, we'll call you in two days. If you need me, call me, the guy used to say to me. Um, but if not, I'll call you in a couple of days. And that's that's how they dealt with me. And I got uh, hypnotherapy. I've got um, a psychologist I work with who's probably the best in the country. So at least I had the resources, which I was really fortunate for. Yeah, um, it's a strange one, isn't it? I know, like, the, for people who know me who's listening to this podcast, that's, this might surprise a lot of people just because of the character that I am. And you follow me on social media, Jimmy, and sort of the character that you might see on social media um, it might come as a surprise to people. But I've suffered anxiety for for most of my adult life from what I can remember. Um but in the last two years, two and a half years, it's got to a point where I didn't feel like I could control it anymore. Yeah. And one of the biggest, one of the biggest barriers to me ever speaking up was the fact that I didn't know why I felt that way. 
Um, I didn't know why I felt anxious. I didn't know uh, why I felt the way I felt. I didn't know why I felt um, why I felt down in the dumps. And like I'd I'd look at it and I and I'd, I'd almost sort of be my own worst enemy because I'd say, "Look at yourself. You've got nothing to moan about. You've got a lovely family. You've got a career. You've got all these other things going on. That you've got no reason to feel like this. You're just being stupid." And it's that it's that typical thing of stigma that everybody talks about. That I didn't want to. I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't feel like I deserved to talk about it. How ridiculous does that make me sound? It's you know you spot on because if, for example, like if I get injured, like let's say I'm training one morning and I feel something go in my hamstring, there will be nothing stopping me going to the physio and going, Pete, can you just have a look at my hamstring? Like, this is what I've felt. This is how it what happened. And I'll give him the information. I'll give him all the information that I got about my hamstring and tell him. So, but if it's not mental health, we we go, well, I shouldn't feel like that. But you think, well, there's what? There's nothing stopping that happening. Like, there's no difference between getting or no difference in shame getting help for mental health than there is physical health. But I think there's such an attitude. Don't know if it's just this country or if it's a global thing where they go the classic saying what have you got to be depressed about? Mm-hmm. And I say, well, it doesn't work like that. That That's like saying to a professional footballer, why are you injured? You, you're a professional athlete. You shouldn't be injured. Like, yeah. it sounds ridiculous. And that's how ridiculous people sound when they say, what have you got to be depressed about? It's an illness. Yeah, yeah. You can't stop. You can do things to prevent it. And like, I'm a massive believer that a lot of what helped me was the things people put in place for me but there's nothing fully stopping me from becoming depressed like that's impossible yeah it's um i think for what further exasperated my issue um and it mine came to a head maybe april this year i think yeah yeah april this year so one of the biggest things that stopped me stepping forward um, was, and this again will sound ridiculous to people, but this is just like what it's like in my head, was um, I'm a I'm an ex-soldier and I was very concerned that I'd step forward and say, look, I'm struggling. And straight away people would say, you've got PTSD. But I did, I did two tours of Iraq and my tours compared to some of the tours that people have experienced were, were very, very minuscule compared to some of the stuff that's gone off in Afghanistan and and yeah. you know and I didn't want labeling because I didn't believe that I deserved to be labeled as daft as that sounds so I didn't want to go to the doctors and I go you got PTSD because I didn't feel like I deserved to have PTSD because there's other people more deserving of of it is that and I know that sounds ridiculous and for anybody listening they must be thinking you sound like a right knobhead but it's genuinely how it felt to me um and that, that that was one of the reasons why I didn't want to come forward to start with no, I can appreciate that. And you spot on what you say, because it's something that, like the word PTSD, like my uncle did uh, tours of Iraq and Afghanistan in the army. And I've always been, I've never asked him what he was like. I've, I, I remember my mom said to me once, she goes, do not ask Bruce ever about when I was only a kid. And I was like, no, okay, I won't, I won't. Um, but so I've never really asked him. I've said, you know, I've asked him about what's the army like to be in and what's it like to be in the army and stuff, but I've never asked him about what tours were like or anything and i've always had in my head that ptsd is something that soldiers get if they experience or witness or something happens in the army that affects them but then i've got a mate a really good mate of mine um and i spoke to her a while back and she said oh i'm struggling and things this is why i was in Bridgewater. i'd come home from training most days and she'd be on the phone to me because she was struggling with her mental health and she said, oh, I've been to the doctors and they've said I've got PTSD. And my reaction, I didn't say this to her, but I thought, I thought that was an army thing. Like, I didn't even realise it was something you can get if you're not in the army. Like, she's a nurse, so the respect I've got for her is off the scale, like, you know, the job she does. Um, but I can see why you'd say that, because it is a, a, it's a, although it might sound irrational, it's quite logical for people to say that because of how they they process it so i fully understand that yeah and then um sort of coming to an end then with with your mental health and jimmy and them two separate occasions like you know for for anybody who's listening who's struggling with their mental health or has struggled with their mental health and can associate with it um sort of 
again, the way that you react and your symptoms towards it, I think, again, are very personal. Um, mine yeah. manifested itself in anger. And um, the only way I've managed to explain this to like my wife and people like that after is that um, imagine being on a scale of one to ten. And one is that you yeah. feel totally safe in your environment. And ten is the world is ending. Someone is coming to murder you uh, yeah. and all your family and they're coming to get you. I roughly every day was about an eight and a half for no reason, for absolutely no reason whatsoever. And it would only take one thing in the day, normal day-to-day stresses, you know, money, children, traffic, work, whatever else, normal day-to-day stresses, and it would push me to a 10 straight away. Yeah. And then the yeah. 10, the 10 would get the reaction that was somebody's trying to kill me. So the 10 would be fight or flight, and I, th- I believe that I'm more fight than flight, not that I'm a fighter by any stretch of imagination, but I'm talking about uh, sort of autonomic response. So my response would then push me to a 10, and I was just awful to be around. I was grumpy, I was snappy, yeah. uh, and, and I, but I couldn't see it in myself because mentally somebody was trying to the, the tyrannosaurus rex is coming to eat me is the is the uh, is the best way of sort of explaining it i mean what were it like for you uh to be fair mate there's quite a lot of similarities there so last season march sort of yeah march april time that's when i just i was angry i was upset like and um there was moments that i thought I'm reacting to this irrationally. For, for example, there's a lad who I know all right well who plays for Aston Villa, and I know his brother. And uh, I was watching that Blues Villa game when um, Jack Grealish scored the winner. And I was so angry. Like, my hate for Birmingham City is off the record. Like, I can't hate a club in the UK any more than I hate Birmingham. <laughs> I was fuming throughout the game. And I thought, why am I so angry over a game? Like, um, and then the opposite happened. After... So I don't drink anymore. Like I don't drink alcohol at all. I haven't had a drink since December. Um, but after the playoff game in when we lost to Derby, I remember sitting. I went around to my mum's house to watch the game. Um, and I remember as soon as the full-time whistle went, I didn't speak. I was so numb. And I just couldn't even process emotion. And all I did for the rest of the night was I got up, I walked in some of the kitchen, I got myself a beer, I came back, I sat down, I drank it. I got up, I got a beer. I came back, I sat down and drank, and that's all I did. So it was like, that was two completely opposite coping mechanisms. Um, But the anger one is, I imagine, quite common, because I felt it as well, where you just feel like you've got all this emotion and you don't know why you've got it or why it suddenly comes to the forefront or how you're dealing with it. And you just need to release it. And anger is sometimes the quickest way to sort of, throw it all out if that makes sense um there were some there were better but much much better ways to deal with it but when you're in the moment and you just feel angry all you want to do is like react to something or shout or blame someone or and when i look back i think no that was so irrational like the hate i had and the, the aggression that i felt but then at the time that was the only way i had to get the emotion out of me yeah, I was very similar. Um, well, as I've said, but mine came to a head not so long ago. I got, um, I've got I can't, again, it's, it's very irrational, but it's like a, it's, it's a thing that's manifested itself since I had kids where I've suddenly become very aware of my own mortality um, as a dad. Uh, and yep. I, don't know where, I don't know where that irrational fear comes from, but it's come from somewhere. Um, and I've got a, I've got a rough idea where it may come from, but I'm not sure. So, like, uh, I've been a firefighter for 13 years now. So, um, over my period of my career, I've been to a lot of very traumatic incidents where you're kind of sometimes left with the aftermath, if that makes sense. You're kind of left with um, what goes on at these horrible incidents afterwards, um, and you're like immersed in it a little bit. Anyway, um, away from that my anxiety became very much related to my kids. So I've literally flown all over the world on some of the biggest heaps of shit you've ever seen uh, that the, the British Armed Forces can fly you on. Like some things that shouldn't even look like they're airworthy, but they are. Um, yeah. And it's never, ever bothered me. Not once. Flying has never bothered me. Getting ear defenders on whatever aircraft and just go to sleep and wake up at the end. Since yeah. I had kids, being on a flight with kids is the most terrifying experience of my life. I absolutely hate it. I hate every minute from taking off to landing. And purely, it's because I've got kids. I don't know why. It's yeah. so irrational. Um, but recently, I got ill. I got a heart infection. Um, 
and I ended up having five days in hospital and it was just as COVID was fully kicking off. Um, And I got put on the COVID warm ward, which basically meant meant that I've not been tested yet and not come back positive or negative. So they put you there first, uh, just in case you've got it, then you go into the COVID ward. So basically I was up there and um, I remember the sensation or the emotion like, like, I'm back at war. I was like ultra hyper vigilant, yeah. constantly like paranoid of everybody because this virus, you know, that's killing hundreds and thousands of people is alive in this hospital and I'm stuck in that hospital as well. So anyway, long story short, spent five days in the hospital, had it all clear, got out, got home. And then that was when I realized that, do you know what? It's probably affected me more than, um, more than I thought. My irrational behavior became more ridiculous. And, yeah. um, Anxiety was just off the chart, couldn't sleep, waking up, the slightest uh, tickly cough. I'd convinced myself I'd got COVID. Um, Horrendous, absolutely horrendous, to the point where I spoke to my wife, uh, who's absolutely fantastic, and I said, look, um, this ain't good, this. This is like, this is worse it's ever been, ever. Didn't want to do anything. We felt lethargic, couldn't sleep. It was just it was just horrific, absolutely horrific. Um, all down to that experience. Um and that's when I kind of realized that I needed to address it, that it weren't right, if that makes any sense. That I could no longer control it. That was it. That was the thing, I think, that I could no longer control it. Yeah, and that's a lot of I think to an extent, some levels of anxiety are expected like you say if you've got a kid i don't have kids so i don't know what it's like to be responsible for kids but i imagine that can you you worry and make sure they're okay that will provoke some anxiety like if you're going into the unknown so i get nervous before i play football and i won't bore you now the psychologist explained there's three reasons why you get nerves and the same time anxiety and nerves are the same thing in terms of no anxiety and excitement sorry are the same output the, the physiological reactions are the same but it's how you perceive it so for example if me and you went on a roller coaster you might be really excited and i'd be really anxious because i don't like roller coasters but the output that we'd show physiolog- physiologically would be the same um but there are in terms of going on to your point it is that can i control it you know a lot of us have everyday problems which you might get to have a level of anxiety about, but if you can control it and you go, oh, I'm a bit anxious about this. I've got to do these jobs, these jobs, it's always a bit much. But if you go, right, I'm going to do it this way and plan it, you're fine. Um, It's when the ability to control it, you don't have and it controls you. I think that's when people get into the, get into the problems um, and, and suffer more. Yeah, so the PFA obviously helped you out um, and yeah. provided that support. I've gone and got some help as well. And um, one of the biggest things, and this is part of the reason why we're doing this podcast now, Jimmy, obviously, is um, I found it really therapeutic and really helpful to speak up and actually say, do you know what? Um, probably on the face of things, and it's funny, I got a message off someone last night who said, the first time I ever met you, you looked like you were one of them people who just knocked people out on a weekend for fun. And that could not be any further from the truth. Um but just being able to speak out and the amount of people who came back said, yeah, I feel the same. I've had that experience, this experience, that other experience, um, became therapeutic for me and became a way of me being able to cope as well with not feeling so isolated and being a, um, and feeling like I were any different to anybody else. And obviously that's part of the reason why we've, we've agreed to come and, and, yeah. um, and do this. And is that, is that, that your experience as well, Jimmy, that talking yeah. suddenly felt like a weight were lifted? Oh, hundred percent. 100% like it's it, some of the conversations I've had with people like you say it's like a weight lifting off your shoulders um, and what I love is and this is social media the idea of social media mate is brilliant for that because like I live in Birmingham I see a Leeds fan who goes running past my past my road sometimes and other than that I probably wouldn't see a Leeds fan that I'd know about but Twitter and obviously I'll probably have to delete my Twitter if I get a new club this summer because it's very Leeds heavy some of the things I tweet, but the defending Kiko saves most of the time. But um, it's very, it allows me to interact with other Leeds fans. And when I've had games, like I used to finish my game and uh, I'd look to my dad afterwards and he'd like tell me what the Leeds score was. Um, 
and you think that with Twitter now, I can talk to fans and be like, oh, what was the game like today? How did we play? Um, and it connects us. And, you know, I'll reach out to you because I saw a tweet on, was it Tuesday night, Wednesday night maybe, um, about mental health. And then from that, a few more of us sort of reached out and said, oh, this was my experience. And then, you know, there's always going to be one person who says something stupid, you know what I mean? Like, because you can do that on social media, you know, you can set your name as, I don't know, Leeds fan Dan, have Patrick Bamford as your picture and write whatever abuse you want and no one can track you for it. Um, See, we're always going to have them idiots, but I think the more we all get together and share our own experiences, the more it will bring out. And in the end, we'll just drown out the sort of negative negativity it brings or negativity, negative people that, that want to sort of throw something out there. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I, I totally 100% agree with that. And that's why I've become a little bit more vocal. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to I'm willing to sort of fight my corner now and say, it's okay for me to feel like this. Whereas maybe yeah. before, I would have probably backed down and gone, yeah, you're right, you know, I should probably feel better about it. But I'm quite willing now to accept that. I've seen, have you ever seen the um, black dog analogy on uh, YouTube? No, have you seen that? So it's basically... And uh, and for anybody who wants to research, go and research because I'm probably going to murder the explanation of it here. But uh, it's basically saying that you know mental health issues are like a black dog, and it's like the black dog is always going to be with you. If you acknowledge that the black dog exists and show it that it exists, it'll leave you alone. If you try and ignore the black dog, it'll pester you to the point, like any dog does, uh, to make you show it attention. So basically, if you get up in the morning and say to the black dog, look, I know you're there. I'll take you for a walk later. So I exercise the mind. Uh, we'll all be good. If you leave it, it'll eventually run right in your life. And it just struck a chord with me a little bit, that. Yeah, it's like the, you've read The Chimp Paradox. Yes, I've read it. Yeah, it's very good. I've, honestly, I've got so many books there. You'd think I'm intelligent, but I'm not. <laughs> um, the Chimp brilliant, because I'm a visual learner. So um, I paid a psychologist like one of the best in the country i said right how much will you charge me for some sessions and we've kept in touch now and it's what's at least one thing i love about football is all of the players so i won't name the players obviously he's worked with but he's worked with players at leeds villa derby um fulham all around and we all sort of watch and look out how the other players are doing um and he does like oh what's the word like not one-to-one coaching but he does like football-based sessions as well for players and things. So he is absolutely brilliant. Um, and I've, he sort of, it brings people together. And he shows me um, the chimp paradox and he shows via diagrams because I'm visual as my learning. And he says, this is what's happening and this is why you're reacting. And when I can see it, I can understand it. And if I can understand it, I can deal with it. Um, and he says the same, no, it's like the chimp, you've got to distract the chimp and feed the chimp. So if you... If you acknowledge, acknowledge it's there and you go, right, okay, well, you know, what do you want? You know, if you feed it or if you do something to distract it, it, it goes, well, not goes away, that's the wrong analogy, but it settles, set, like, tames it. Um, and, and that's what it is. I think the trouble is, is my generation, so I'm 26 now, and people a bit younger than me are massively into the gym and they'll go in the gym and they'll train, like, the show muscles, so like they'll go on the bench press, they'll go on biceps and like, obviously with mine, our gym programs like alter differently because it's football related. Um, but I think all of the people in the gym, if I went into a local gym, like I'd be like, none of you are training your brain. It's the most powerful thing you've got, but no one will train it because they don't acknowledge it or they don't know how to train it. Um, so I think that's a, a thing that people need to almost educate themselves on a little bit of how to, how to train the mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, after the thread you were talking about earlier about uh, mental health that, that fired up, it was from um, a guy called Carl who works for the Terrace. Um, yeah. Yeah, great, great company, great, great people. And um, I got a fair few DMs, um, a lot, to be honest, to the point where I was struggling to plow through them. And um, like I said that to the majority of them, like the things that have helped me is speaking about it, exercise, acknowledging the fact that maybe one day I don't feel great, but education, like the chimp paradox, that um, one of the biggest things for me, there's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a, 
a fuck. Apologies for anybody who doesn't like swearing. But um, one of the biggest things for me has always been uh, people's opinion of me. Uh, yeah. And occasionally I let that cat out of the bag every now and again with my other podcast, the Leeds podcast. Um, yeah. And I, I can't help it. It's just it's just a, a thing. But uh, that book helped me massively in terms of people's opinion who you take for gospel. You know, some people don't deserve to give you their opinion of you or whatever else. And and then another thing as well is like, um, you know, you may walk into a room or whatever and believe that people are judging you. And in reality, they're not. It's yeah, you yeah. that's judging yourself. They they don't care that you know they're not bothered. You just you're judging yourself because it's your own insecurity. And and that book helped me massively, along with the Chimp Paradox and um, a couple others. So yeah, I, I'm absolutely on board with. You need to educate your mind on how things work, and you know then you can learn to cope with it as well. It's interesting what you just made a point there um, about other people's views and other people's opinions. So for me, like I'm 26 now, and I think I've got to a point where. I know, like, I'm an all right guy. Like, I'm not perfect, do you know what I mean? Like, sometimes I leave a little bit of milk in the fridge and put it back so I don't have to go to recycling. Like, oh, we, <laughs> we all do things, do you know what I mean? But I'm on my own, so I've got to do it at some point. Like, no one else is in the eggs. Um, so I don't know why I do that. But the, everyone's got, no one's perfect. It doesn't exist. But, like, for me, I know I'm all right. So if someone's got a problem with me, the chances are that's on them. That's already their issues. And I think, like you say, the people's opinion of them are gospel and things. So there's people I look to. So whether that's the psychologist, like the, if I'm at a club, like I've got a few offers coming in for next season now. So the manager, the staff, people at their club's opinion of me, I'll take because they're my boss, essentially. Um, and this is where Twitter goes from being a positive place to a toxic place because people can say what they want. And I've had my abuse on Twitter whether that's me as a player. And some days I've had a shocker and I think, nah, do you know what, mate? You're right. I was terrible today. Um, but I think I know that. Like, I know I was bad today. Um, I don't need, you know, some bloke on Twitter to send me a, a long thread reminding me. Um, and there's also things where I've seen um, players where fans have criticised players over things. And I think, you don't know what, like, that's not true. So I've tried to defend the truth and then I've got hammered for it. And I think, that's not right. Um, and there is, you know, everyone's entitled to an opinion. Don't go around. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. And that's their opinion. And it's most people's opinion on me is none of my business because it's their opinion. Um, and I think you've got to think, like, the best example I can give is, you know, obviously I know you through Twitter and being a Leeds fan. So the Leeds fans on Twitter give their views on the team. And I think if that's your view, that's cool. Like, if you don't think this player should play or you think that player should play or that's your opinion, which you're completely entitled to. But what's your opinion based on? Like, you know, are you just watching a game and just making an assumption because you don't like that player or you have heard other people say these things? Or do you, have you studied the game and been involved in the game and really studied it and gone, I can see why this happens and this is what that player brings? Like, because it's, you know, it's like me tweeting about the government. I might have an opinion, but it's not educated. Do you know what I mean? I've just read whatever someone else has said and gone, oh, that sounds right. Yeah, that's, I agree with that. But I'm only agreeing because they've, they've said an opinion which I agree with, but their opinion could be made up of their belief. So all of a sudden, you've got an irrational belief of something that you haven't really looked into yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it becomes unconscious bias, doesn't it? Where yeah. it's like you see something so many times that you take that as truth um, and you then become probably part of the problem as well. Like, And, yeah, I, I must agree with you that, that social media and the thing with social media is, and I, I've had I've had a saying since we started Talking Shut, because we've come in with some stick on Talking Shut, uh, which is the Leeds podcast for anybody who doesn't listen to it. Um, awesome today it, yeah, on your Twitter. It's like um, opinions like assholes. Everybody's got one. Some are just more shitty than others. And that's fine. You're entitled to totally have your own opinion. What I don't like is people who try and force their opinion on you despite you having a different opinion. And when they can't do that, they then start getting like, I don't know, abusive, yeah. threats, threats of violence, all that type of stuff. Just just like, what I bring up about, and I'm, I'm trying not to rant here, but what I bring up about the sometimes a stick that we get on the other podcast or, or even the podcast that this, this podcast has had a little bit of stick is yeah. that like if I put ITV on and Coronation Street's on, I don't yeah. ring Ofcom and say, I don't like Coronation Street. I just turn the channel over. Yeah. So, 
like we live in a modern society now where everybody rightly has got a voice, but too many people believe that it's their right to exercise it despite the feeling that they're going to portray on other people. Does that make yeah. sense? Like, so just, just like my mum always used to say, if you've got no nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I, yeah. I, I still live by that to a point. Don't get me wrong. I've got my opinion. I've got, I'll have a debate, but I'll only have a debate and an opinion if it's a educated one, like you say, and it's a, and it's a, you know, a healthy debate. There's no room for abuse. There's no room for, I mean, mate, I've been DM saying, if I see you at Ellen Road, you can get ready. Now, like, fine, that's fine. I DM'd him back and said, that's fine. Let me know. I'll make sure I've not got my son. Here's my mobile number. Give me a ring. I'll quite happily come and talk to you about it if you want. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> they blocked me. That's just like, it, you know, it is sort of the MO sometimes, but they're, they're the things that, that irritate me, to be honest, about social media. So worked up like it's not like you've gone to them and causing a problem like you've had a different view and when you give someone education in an argument they don't like and that's when they give the abuse and the best example i can give mate is kiko kasir at leeds the fans like hammer him oh he makes mistakes he's rubbish and i go all right let, let's look at this objectively let's take my emotion of like oh like it's one, one of my favorite goal is let's look he's got three champions league medals and he's played for Spain. So he's probably not rubbish, is he? Like, he's probably all right. Um, and then they go, well, look at what he's done this season. And I've looked, Matt, I've, so at football, like, we have to analyse certain players, and I'm able to choose the goalkeepers that I play most like and that my style matches. And that was always, like, Ika Casillas I grew up watching. And then through my style, the way I like to play, I'm very confident on the ball and I like to play out. So Kiko is, like, perfect for me. And I said, okay, like the Brentford goal, the ball went under his foot. Well, that's a miscontrol. So if we're hammering every player that miscontrols the ball, then my days, we're getting rid of half the team. Like, because they've all miscontrolled the ball once in the season. Um, not Ben White, obviously. He's, he's a little genius. Um, and then other things like, okay, yeah, he made a mistake against Knott's Forest and Wigan. He should have saved them shots. But then Huddersfield away. He made a world-class save. Redden at home, won us the game. Hull at home, won us the game. And you think, if you're going to have look at it objectively, and if you look at his style of play, like the amount of attacks that we've ended in like a goal-scoring opportunity that have come from Kiko at the start, you think, well, actually, it's really important to how we play. Um, but people don't want that. People don't want you to have an, an educated opinion or give them facts if it doesn't meet their agenda they'll just they'll hate you then and they'll just want to just slag you off yeah absolutely so jimmy what's um what's the future for for jimmy gobs then um obviously don't go into too much detail if you've got offers on the table but you know what, what what's the future for you yeah um yeah there's a few sort of league two i've been looking at there's been a couple of clubs in league two i spoke to one in league one um where i'm I'd rather take the League One option, not because it's higher, but because of who the manager is. Um, and I think he'd, what my morals are in football, he matches a lot. So I'd, I'd love to go there. And I think that would be a great chance to showcase my ability. Um, like I say, one or two in League Two that I've, I've spoken to, one in the National League. Um, and then recently, there's also been a bit of interest out in Australia for me. So... That's, I think I'm at a point where I think, oh, that's that's a good option, that is. I'd, I'd like to maybe go and explore that. Um, and then this morning, I had someone from Spain contact me. Well, I say this morning, it was like last night, but I picked it up this morning. Um, so there's, there's a few options out there. And like I say, it, I think as soon as someone s sends me, like gives me a trial or offers me a contract, they'll see my ability and that'll, that'll do the talking for itself. Um, so it's just the minute... It's just a case of training on my own. So I've got a goalie coach that I work with on my own. I've got a chef that I work with. Uh, I've got my own gym in my house. Um, well, it's in my garage. You've probably seen it on my Twitter. Um, I've got a personal trainer uh, as well who does a lot of stuff with me. So I've got a good team around me. And obviously, I've got the sports psychologist who's, honestly, it's five minutes on the phone to him. And you think, oh, I'm going to take over the world. Like, is that good? Um, so, yes, there's, there's a lot of things going, but... You know, football is such a competitive industry. You, you've you've got to be at it twenty four seven. You've got to live it. Like it's got to be your life, really. So um, I'm hoping the next next couple of weeks we might have something sorted.
Happy days. Uh, and where can people find you, Jimmy, who may not already follow you? Because obviously, this podcast really is not Legion United related. We have made it Legion United related a little bit, but I think we've also got good um, got a good message across about mental health as well. So where can people find you if they want to follow your career? Um, best place, just follow my Twitter, um, Twitter and Instagram. So Instagram underscore 25 and underscore cabbers, C-A-B-B-E-R-S on, um, on Twitter. Just follow me on there and we'll sort of, all my updates in terms of when I sign for somebody or what my training schedule is or what I'm up to is on there. And then anyone that's struggling with mental health, like, you know, I'm not a qualified doctor and I'm not, you know, got a degree or anything, but because I've experienced it, I know the benefits of, you know, nutrition and in physical exercise, in training, running, um, cycling, gym-based stuff, playing football, I know the benefits of that. And also the benefits of just having a conversation with somebody. Um, so, yeah, if anyone just wants to chat or wants a bit of advice, uh, whether it's football-related, mental health-related, or wants to talk to me about Leeds United, just um, give me a follow, drop me a message, and I'm more than happy to have a chat with anybody. Yeah, absolutely. So go, go check Jimmy out um, on the various social media platforms. I'm going to start wrapping it up now because I'm aware that you've got to be somewhere. Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, Jimmy... Thanks very much, mate, for reaching out. Um, I think it's been uh, really good. A little bit different from uh, from the start, but uh, the message is uh, equally as powerful and important as the previous five guests. Um, I'm going to get my finger out and record some more episodes. It's been a bit of a nightmare, as Jimmy will attest to. Leeds got promoted to Premier League, and so all my focus has been on uh, the football-related uh, content that I uh, push out or try to push out regularly. Uh, but I will get back into this. I've got some big guests coming up, uh, some more stories from Afghanistan, um, who else we got lined up? Uh, a world champion boxer, a few other good people. Um, so yeah, make sure you like, uh, subscribe for from the start podcast on all podcast providers. Give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, which again I've kind of let lapse, but I'll get back into it. Um, and again, a massive thanks to you, Jimmy, for your time, pal. Really appreciate it. Good luck with your career going forward, wherever that may be, whether that's England, Spain, or Australia. Um, I wish I had them options to be honest. I wish someone ring me up and said, Do You want to come and work in Australia? That'd be uh, fantastic. But Anyway, that's it. So uh, I'll get a wrap on. Uh, thanks very much for everybody who's tuned in and uh, I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Thanks, guys.